This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Rick Martinez. I'm a cookbook author, video host, and I am a firm believer in a good tomato pie. I'm Carla Lally Music. I am also a cookbook author, video host, and I just put skinny dipping down on the August to-do list. Amen. And this is Borderline Salty, the show where we skinny dip, take your calls, boost your confidence, and make you a better, smarter, and happier cook. Today, we'll discuss how to cook veggies without heating up the kitchen, the trick to getting even gorgeous golden brown cutlets, and the keys to perfect chocolate chip cookies. And today, on Total Kitchen Nightmare, we'll be sitting with my amazing friend and incredible human being, Eva Longoria, to hear her nightmare. <laughs> But before we get into it, I want to share that this week's segment of Tell Me Something Good is brought to you by the Sonos Move, a powerful and portable smart speaker for listening all around your home and beyond. Soundtrack your summer with Sonos. Discover Move plus other speakers and soundbars at Sonos.com. Okay, Rick, now tell me something good. Carla, I have a new favorite beach snack. Ooh. Okay, wait, let me guess. Is it frozen grapes? <laughs> <laughs> it is not frozen grapes, sadly. Although, if I did try and take them, I'm sure they'd stay frozen for about, like, 10 <laughs> seconds before they melted. <laughs> so there are these things called cocadas. Mm-hmm. They're similar to macaroons. It's a mound of coconut that is coated in sugar, normally with a little bit of vanilla and then piloncillo. Mm. Sometimes the cook will add a little bit of either evaporated or condensed milk to make it a little bit milky. But they are so incredibly delicious. And I think the reason is because a lot of these cooks will harvest the coconuts that grow along the beach and then they'll literally just shred the coconut meat out of the shell, cook it lightly in sugar until it just begins to caramelize. So it's just like a really blonde, 
mound of delicious coconut. So it's, it has a little bit of a shell on the outside, but it's still kind of soft and tender in the middle. Yum. Is it like chewy a little bit, like a soft a crack? A little bit. Mm. Yeah. And well, because also like there's so much moisture in the fresh coconut. And right. so, you know, all of those oils, you know, the coconut milk that's inside the flesh is still present. So it's just so incredible. And there are these people that like walk by with little boxes and... You know, I'll be laying on the beach, kind of like half asleep, and I'll see somebody walking with a little box. And I'm like, okay, wait, wait, wait. What do you have? What do you have? And they're like, cocados. I'm like, okay, I'll take 17, please. Thank you. Well, look out for that the next time I am at the beach. But usually I'm just looking out for the guy with the rum punch. I mean, you know, and then there's that. So Yeah, he's yeah. a good guy to know. Also a good beach treat. So Carla, why don't you tell me something good? Well, I'm happy to report that here we are deep in August, and I just had my first really ripe peach eaten over the sink. Oh, my God. I love peaches over the sink. I mean, it's a true, like, rite of summer. You know, summer isn't summer if you haven't eaten a peach over the sink. And this was even a white peach, which is not my normal. I'm like, prefer yellow over white, but it was a really good peach. Oh, my God. Wait, so how many did you buy and where'd you get it? I went last week to the Carroll Street Market. I ended up getting white and yellow peaches that were pretty firm. So these were in my house for six full days, like ripening. And in that time, the peach achieved its, you know, height of heights. Oh, God. I have to say, I do really miss late August in New York, the peaches and the blueberries. Yeah. That to me is like the ultimate galette. Like that when I see those things, I mean, I just want to eat them raw, but then I also want to put them in a galette and eat them with ice cream. Oh, God. Oh, now I want to eat peaches over the sink. Damn it. (laughs) Caller number one, we're ready for you. Hey, Carla and Rex. My name is Tamala. My cooking conundrum, which happens every year, is how do I get vegetables into my spouse who doesn't like salads during the summer when it's too hot to make roasted broccoli or the other cooked dishes that he loves, but it's just too hot to make like a giant pot of vegetable soup or a big sheet tray of roasted vegetables. So if you could think of any creative ways that I can make vegetables cooked without heating up our home and making us miserable, I'd really appreciate it. All right. Well, this sounds like to me that Pamela's got a opposite of a raw vegan on her hands. (laughs) But, you know, I completely agree. The last thing I want to do in the summertime is get my house really, really hot in the kitchen. So what I do is I use the grill. In fact, yesterday I made a summer squash ragu but on the grill. So I just threw a bunch of cut squash, garlic, onion, olive oil on a sheet tray on my gas grill, let it cook at like 375 for about an hour, pulled it out. And then when I was ready to eat, it was cool. I just mashed it up, added some ricotta, some parm, a little bit of lemon, lemon zest, a little bit more olive oil, and threw it in some pasta and Mm. with a little pasta water. And boom, I've got a really nice summertime meal and the only thing that I had to heat was the, on the inside of the house, was the pasta and the pasta water. So, yum. To Rick's point, 
you know, really just using your burner for a short amount of time or to only do one thing. When vegetables are really peaking, especially things like snap beans and all of the Romano beans, like those are really in season right now. I'm a big fan of like a shallow poach situation. Mm. So not even bringing a big pot of water to a boil, but bringing a small amount of water to a boil, salting it really well, and then cooking things like green beans, wax beans, Romano beans, you know, sugar snap peas, just until they're tender. So probably three minutes, and then you can cool them down quickly, but they won't have that raw bite to them. And something like that I really love with like a basic aioli or make a yogurt dip, something like that, or a hummus or a white bean puree. And then you can have kind of not raw vegetables that are still not piping hot, and you've barely used your stovetop. Right. Another thing that I like to do too, not necessarily to avoid heating up the house, but just because I like them. So making a vegan version of a ceviche or a mm. carpaccio or mm. an aguachile. And so you'd mentioned roasted broccoli that your spouse likes that. Well, so you could actually make a broccoli ceviche or aguachile. Use lime, a little serrano, cilantro, a little garlic, a little splash of olive oil, chop up your broccoli really fine, toss that together, serve that with tostadas, some crackers, and you've got a really, really nice like either appetizer or you can like turn it into a larger meal and have some margaritas. Mm -hmm. And who's going to know that you're missing any other sides? Yum. Another thing that I would recommend with all of the summer produce is to do a hot brine pickle. So again, this is a small amount of liquid being heated up for a very short amount of time and then poured over any kind of crunchy vegetable. You can do this with zucchini, cucumbers. You can do it with pickles. I've done it recently with beautiful yellow and red beets and just thinly slice those things, put them in jars, pour the hot brine over. It will soften them. It will season them. And then they're good to go in the fridge. And then you can make one of my favorite sandwiches of all times, Ooh. a California veggie, and put all your pickled veg in there. That is amazing. You know, the other thing is that it sounds like you might also be suffering from a bit of a marketing challenge. Mm -hmm. Like this idea of a California veggie is essentially a salad inside of bread. Yeah, we're doing alternative salads here. Right. Not a fake salad, just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. Can't wait to see what you come up with. Hello, caller. You're on the air. Hello, you two. It's, uh, my name is Mr. Ham, and I'm calling. All right, so you're cooking a... Uh, a cutlet, let's say maybe it's a pork cutlet, it could be a chicken cutlet, you know, you've properly dredged it and let it come up to temperature, it's not too cold, it's fresh out of the fridge or anything like that, and you've got it in the pan, it's nice and hot, the pan itself is nice and hot before you add the oil, and then uh, you add your meat, and then you get like a nice golden crust around the edges of, the, of your cutlet, but maybe it's not exactly sort of like perfectly golden across the entirety of it. And I've tried things, different things, like perhaps weighing it down. I've got a smaller cast iron pan that I put on top of it. It doesn't really make much of a difference. It's still the center. isn't It's not completely golden brown in the way you might like it to be. And I've tried all different things. Maybe the pan's too hot, but I really have no idea. So I'd love your assistance. Thank you very much. Goodbye. 
Not only do I love this question, I love this accent so much that it's making my heart sing. I can't handle it. I need to like just listen to this man talk all, all day. day. <laughs> <laughs> and the conundrum is a really common one. It happens to us all. The trick is you want to get great golden brown color, but it's a thin cut of meat, so you don't want to overcook. So you're in this like race against time where sometimes you have to decide, do I want the cutlet to still be juicy or am I going to just lean into the browning that I'm going for at the possible expense of the meat that is going to spend too much time in the pan? So when this happens to me, and this will happen with both kinds of cutlets, the edges of the cutlet are making good contact with the oil around the edge, but the center has kind of pulled away from the pan a little bit. And in order to get the heat conductivity to carry to the center of your cutlet so that the browning is going to happen evenly everywhere, you just need more oil in the pan. The oil is really acting as an invisible bridge between the surface of the pan and the protein that you have put into the pan. And if it's too low there, it's just their cutlet has nothing to get brown in. It's going to get hot, but it's not going to get brown. If you're only doing one or two cutlets, pick a skillet that is just big enough to hold them snugly. If you have a ton of extra real estate in the pan, you're just going to be pouring a lot of extra oil. So keep them snug. Make sure there's a good amount of oil so that they're making contact with that cooking medium. And I would also recommend cast iron or a heavy skillet. A lot of times what happens if your pan is really thin you will actually have hot and cold spots. And so I'm not certain what pan you're using, but you might get like that really nice brown, golden brown color on the edges of your cutlet because your pan is thin. And so maybe your cutlet is sitting over the, uh, the your, outer your edge. fire. Yeah. Yeah. And so the center may be a little bit cooler on your pan and therefore not giving you that even browning. So by using a cast iron or a heavy bottomed skillet, you'll actually have a much more even heating and then the chances of you getting an even golden crust on your cutlet are going to be increase exponentially. And it sounds like the cutlets that you're using are pre-sliced, which means that all of the protein strands in the meat are intact. Whereas if you pound a pork chop, for example, and flatten it out to make a cutlet, you will actually break down the proteins and they won't pucker up when they hit the heat because they oh, will have broken. So you may want to, if you're buying these pieces of meat from the store pre-cut, you may want to just give it a quick pound to break up the protein and then you're good to go to season it and bread it and then cook it. Super smart, Rick. Love that. Caller, you're on. Hi, Rick and Carla. My name's Abby, and my question is this. Is there any reason to be using a wooden spoon instead of another utensil? Because recently, in a lot of recipes, I've been seeing mix with a wooden spoon, and I can't believe that there's any difference between that and, like, a silicone spoon or a spatula or something like that. So is this all some kind of a wooden spoon conspiracy, or is there really a reason to be using one? This segment of Borderline Salty is sponsored by Big Wood. Thank you, Big Wood. <laughs> <laughs> Big Wood USA. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, I've been waiting for that Big Wood sponsorship for so long. <laughs> Honestly, if I had to work for a conglomerate, I would want it to be the Wooden Spoon conglomerate. I would really feel at home. Yeah. Well, as long as they were exotic woods, right? Oh, I want God. Big, Only the most exotic, wood. teak mm, scent. Yes. 
<laughs> okay, so you know what was I, what was going through my eye when I was listening was like, why would you use a wooden spoon instead of any other spoon? Is because you want to save your hearing. There is no worse <laughs> sound to me than the sound of a metal spoon in like a metal pan. That is, it is so upsetting. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Okay, so are you responsible for at BA? Whenever there was a ground beef recipe and it said, cook your ground beef using a wooden spoon to break up the clumps of beef as you cook until, you know, and it's brown and delicious. Was that you? Like, because I always wondered, like, why would it matter, like, if I used a wooden spoon or a metal spoon or a oh, fork oh, for that okay. Matter? So now you're on Team Abby? What's this? I take no, the fifth. I'm just, no, I'm pleading the fifth. I have no further questions. I am just asking a simple <laughs> question, Your Honor. <laughs> We have a hostile witness on the stand. I know. For breaking up beef, I don't think it has to be a wooden spoon. But I can think of many, many examples. Like when it's something like you've cooked a nice piece of pork and gotten great color on it, take it out of the pan, add liquid. Whenever we talk about deglazing, we would say mm. use a wooden spoon to scrape up the brown bits from the surface of the pan. I feel like a silicone spatula doesn't have the integrity. It's just too right, right. right. It's gonna like gently slide over the top of the font. So you want something sturdy. But could you use a fish spatula? Sure. You want to use a metal spoon? Great. You live alone. You love screeching noises. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> no conspiracy here. We just love big wood. Big wood. Everybody <laughs> should like big wood. Come on. <laughs> What's not to love? You just want to give that big wood a big hug. <laughs> and if you listen to this episode backwards, it'll be like, da, 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 use wooden spoons. La, 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 la. Wooden spoons are the best. La, 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 la. <laughs> wooden spoons are nothing. $9.99. I think we have time for one more caller. Hello, Rick. Hello, Carla. This is Brian. So I have a recipe that's been stumping me for years, and I'm no, like, slouch in the kitchen. I've done so much baking with my grandmother and my mother. But for some reason, no matter what recipe I try, I cannot produce a fantastic chocolate chip cookie. I've tried all sorts of different butters, different flours, different recipes. My husband can throw everything in the mixer, whip it up, and then it's done. But I follow the directions, and it just isn't working for me. So I need some help. I have a feeling Rick and I are thinking the same thing, which is if our husband is great at making chocolate chip cookies and we are not, just take that as like a gift and a sign and go lie back down on the couch and like <laughs> make sure the milk is ice cold when those cookies come out of the oven. Oh, but if you yes. feel <laughs> if you feel really compelled to master this chocolate chip cookie, I think there's a couple things to think about as you head into a recipe. And Rick and I have definitely said this before, but there really are not bad cooks. There are bad recipes. So the first thing I would say is, like, make sure that recipe is vetted. Make sure it has a lot of really good reviews. Make sure it's from a publication or a book that you trust. Beyond that, if it is a good recipe, you need to know, like, what to look for and to make sure you're paying attention visually. But this is Rick's jam. So, like, Rick, break down the chocolate chip cookie, the wish list, the highs, the lows. Like, what are we looking for? 
So one of the things that completely changed my baking is the use of a scale. Years and years ago, I was cross-testing a recipe that did not have weights, and it was a friend of mine who made this snickerdoodle, and it was a really delicious snickerdoodle. I tasted hers, and I could not for the life of me remake this cookie. And what it ended up coming down to was the way that we measured our flour. Because we weren't using scales, like I was doing the spoon and level method, as was she, but she was using like this teeny tiny spoon and I was using like a really big mounded, you know, soup spoon full of flour. And that actually impacted the weight of the flour in the recipe by almost an ounce. My cookies were very fat and bready. Her cookies were really thin and crispy. And so look for a recipe that has, you know, good reviews from a place you trust that also has gram amounts and then get yourself a really good scale. I love a brown butter cookie. I also really like a stir cookie, like a one bowl, just dump everything in and stir. So what I would do first is I would look for a one-bowl cookie recipe. There are Martha Stewart recipes that are really good. I have a one-bowl skillet cookie, which I really like. And you can actually use that dough and just scoop it out in one-ounce scoops, put that on a sheet tray and bake that, and you will get like a thinner cookie. Yeah, I have one too. It's a Stella Parks recipe that is so easy. Like you can't believe they're going to work out because you literally just dump everything in and stir it. And it makes a great cookie. Yeah. And then I think, you know, once you get a recipe under your belt that you're getting really good success from, then I think you can migrate into like a creamed situation. And then from there, go into a brown butter. And then you can just kind of experiment and, you know, get to the point, I think, that your husband is at where it seems like he's just effortlessly throwing things together and all of a sudden this magical cookie appears. Otherwise, I would just let him do the work. Like, you make something else. Yeah, sometimes the common mistakes that I make when I'm making chocolate chip cookies, and it is a cookie that I really love to make, is I often overbake. Mm, you mm. should pull them before you think they're dark because they continue cooking. So I always sort of take the cookie out when it's like exactly where I want it to end up. And then they always go a little bit over. So they'll be a little bit crisper or a little bit tougher than I hope they should be. And then I would also look, do a little detective work in the titling of the recipe because of the different styles of cookies. Like what I would say is there's a cookie jar for every type of cookie out there. And you have to decide if you're a thin and crispy person, if you're a fat and chewy person, if you want like crispy on the outside and chewy in the middle, and then look for recipes that give you those clues in the recipe title. So you want to find a recipe title that doesn't just say classic chocolate chip cookie because there are so many, but look for a recipe title that aligns with the type of cookie you want to eat. The other thing, actually, when you were talking about that, you know, the cook times, I was thinking, you know, one thing that I always do if I'm making a cookie recipe for the first time is the first bake, I only bake at most six cookies. Mm. If I'm not quite sure how much they're going to spread or if I'm not sure quite what the cooking time is going to be, I'll only bake four to six at a time and then just see what they do. Like, see how far they spread. Do I agree with what the bake time is? Did I get a nice puff? Was it cracked? Was it cracked enough? Did it not crack at all? Did I get the little rings on the outside? And then I'll adjust it for those kinds of things. So I bake the first small batch, I look at it, and then I make adjustments. Smart. You're smart. 
Oh, thanks, Carla. So are you. (laughs) It's time for our next segment, Total Kitchen Nightmare. In this segment, we're bringing in friends, our culinary heroes, to share their kitchen disasters. And this week, we are speaking to a very special guest, a very dear, sweet person, a very good friend of mine, none other than Miss Eva Longoria. Eva is really someone who does it all, an actress, a producer, a director, an activist, philanthropist, entrepreneur, and now the host of her own podcast, Connections, with Eva Longoria. We are so excited to chat with her, and I truly can't wait to hear what kitchen nightmare she has in store for us. Hello. Hi, y'all. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Same here. I agree. We're not here to talk about the great moments in your life. We're here to talk about your biggest total kitchen nightmare moment. Set the scene. Let's hear it. Yes. The fried turkey craze was taking off. And I'm like, Thanksgiving's the most important holiday in our household. And so I'm like, I've been a turkey connoisseur my whole life. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. The roasting, the frying, the brining, the not brining, the butter in the skin, the butter not under this. I mean, like I've done it all. But it was when this um, fried turkey thing came out and it was dangerous. You've got to like connect the gas line to the thing. And then you fill up your turkey fryer with water, place your turkey in there to see how far it fills up. Then take out your turkey, jump out the water, and then you know where your oil line is. It's just a whole thing. And I was like, oh my God, this is so much work. But I guess I mismeasured. And so when I put the turkey in, it just overflowed. Oh my God. And then caught fire from the fire. I'm surprised I didn't burn down my house. Like, wow. like I was, oh I mean, I was by myself. Nobody was home. What? Yeah, because I was like, I, I was doing a test run before <laughs> Thanksgiving. Wow. This is how serious I take Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> so prepared. Yes, and it just, I mean, it didn't blow up, but it just like caught fire. I was like, oh my gosh. And it just died down by itself. Wow. Because I was like, I know I don't put water, but do I put flour? Like, I don't, I didn't even know what to do with an oil fire. What are you supposed to do? You can throw kosher salt kosher on it salt. if you have it. Okay. But were you like outside in your driveway? I was outside near the garage. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. At least wow. I was smart enough to be outside. Yeah. Oh my God. Wow. But also smart enough to take all of these precautionary measures. I never knew that part about the water, but that's so smart to check how much it's going to rise. Yeah. How much is going to rise because it's such a dense piece of poultry. But now I found I found an electric fryer, and so that's safer. Like I feel like I don't I won't <laughs> blow anything up. Like oil may get everywhere, but at least I won't blow the house up. Right, right. And there's no like <laughs> gas tank sitting next to a giant bubbling vat of oil, which has always sort of freaked me out. I was like, I feel like somebody should be doing this. That's not me. Because <laughs> it's like gas. There you go. And screwing things on. And I was like listening. I was YouTubing everything because I was like, how to connect the <laughs> gas to your fryer. I mean, this is not things normal people should be doing. So even though you had the terrifying fire in your test run, did you end up going forth and frying for the actual Thanksgiving day? I did. I did fry, and it was great. I mean, I've never gone back, I'll tell you that. I I don't roast my turkey anymore. I don't roast a turkey. I just, also, I make like four turkeys. So you don't have the oven space to do four turkeys in eight hours. Like, so when you fry a turkey, it's about 45 minutes per turkey. So I just 
Boom, 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 boom. And mostly everybody is more excited about my leftovers more than the Thanksgivings. I make turkey salad sandwiches, like on an open-faced sourdough, and I do pozole with turkey. Love. Yes. Um, So everybody's like waiting for that, like the second round. And I'm like, we ate all the turkey. We don't have any turkey. They're like, what do you mean we don't have any turkey? (laughs) Rick and I love failures. Like we love talking about our failures because they are so like intertwined with anything that ever worked out for us as well. Like in just the process of every recipe development, there's the like the big idea, the attempt, the fail, the tribulations, and then the success. So with the fire... I love that you just got right back up on the horse and fried again. <laughs> but <laughs> was there something about that fail that you think makes you a better chef today? Yeah. I love kitchen fails too because there's so many beautiful things that can come out of it. Like uh, I was in Oaxaca and, you know, Oaxacan cheese, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. called quesillo, was an accident. Really? Oh. Yes, it was an accident. It was this little young maiden, she must have been 12. She was supposed to watch the cheese. It overcurdled. And so she poured boiling water into it to try to get it back to its form. Oh. And she started, she tried to, you know, get it back to like a brie consistency. And it just got stringier and stringier. <laughs> oh my gosh. And she was like, oh my God, oh my God. I'm like, my parents are going to kill me when they come back. <laughs> and that's how quesillo was made, was it was a mistake. And so now, once it gets to a certain point, they pour boiling water and you have right. to stir it really fast and mold it really fast, and then it comes into that ball. And that's why it's kind of stringy and melts right. deliciously. But if that was a mistake. Wow, that's and amazing. It's the best cheese in the world. It is 100% the best cheese. Well, back to the mistakes. Like, there's so many mistakes I make. So many, so many mistakes. And then you're like, I kind of like this. Um, but, you know, over COVID, when everybody was making sourdough, I was making croissants. I mean, it takes three days to make a croissant. So, like, the first day is the the dough, the second day is the folding, the third day is the rolling, proofing, baking. And so you see when you fuck it up because your butter did not incorporate Mm -hmm. and it's just chunks and you're like, ah, and they still come out amazing. And so (laughs) I had like a whole cycle because I was doing it every day. So every day was like that batch is on the second day, this batch is on the third day, but I'm making the first day because I wanted to keep moving it along. And I would always go, oh, I screwed up. And my husband was like, well, I don't know where you screwed up in the process because <laughs> it still tastes amazing. But like I could see the folds weren't right. right. I could see the chunks of butter. You know, it wasn't distributed equally. It didn't fold in well. And so that was a fun, you know, months of failure to do croissants. I wish I had been your neighbor during that time. Good God. Like, okay, I'm ready for my daily bag of croissant fuck-ups. <laughs> yes, I kept screwing them up. And some days, it w- you know what? It also depended on the weather. Right, yeah. Because we were in Valle de Bravo, which is a lake in Mexico. And if I made them in Mexico City, obviously the altitude's altitude. different. <laughs> it sounds like you're not. you're definitely not afraid of mistakes. We welcome them. And like if you were encouraging your son or encouraging a listener who has had a failure and wasn't able to even eat the mistake. Like I always eat my mistakes. What what would you tell them just to keep going? I mean, my advice I think to people is like, obviously to keep going, keep moving. And I think, you know, if you look at the history of food and the evolution of food and the travel of spices, there were these two women, they were the first cookbooks out of Mexico, Josefina and, oh, I forget the other woman, but 
when they first made their cookbooks in English for U.S. homes, they said, they would say chili poblano. And if you don't have a poblano where you live, use a bell pepper. It was like food is meant to evolve and it's sort of Mm -hmm. like a scarcity. Like you don't have that in your region. Um, I don't have chipotle, so I'm going to use something else to add heat, you know, whatever. And I think that's how new dishes get. I mean, that's how Tex-Mex came to be, right? That's how California Mexican food came to be. Like, it's just different. I think I'm going to get a pillow or one of those needlepoint frames for my kitchen that just says accidents happen. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Yes, they do all the time. Yeah. Eat your mistakes. Eat your mistakes. That's a better needlepoint. Yeah, eat your mistakes. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Well, Eva, thank you so much for spending this time with us. And like, it seems like Thanksgiving is a far way away, but let it be a cautionary tale to everybody. You're starting your planning now. Just, you know, do the water check. Make sure somebody's home. Get out the fire extinguisher. Yes. Maybe (laughs) when doing something dangerous, have a fire extinguisher. Make sure somebody's home. Yeah. (laughs) Just in case. Have a partner. Have a partner. That's good advice. (laughs) Well, thank you all so much. It was fun to talk to you. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest who celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Shimon Liai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. So before we put on our jacket and boots and march on out of here, it is time for one more segment, and that segment is No Thank You Please. And the ingredient we are talking about today is... Raisins. Ugh, I love a raisin. I do too. Listen, I know the idea of a secret raisin or a raisin in a place where they did not think it was going to be is very upsetting to a lot of people. Like sometimes in savory food, especially if there's just like a free radical raisin, it might be a little jarring. Right, right. I think it's finding that balance. Yes. So like I've used it in more of an Argentinian style or a Spanish style picadillo, which I like pairing 
but very judiciously, maybe a quarter to a third of a cup of raisins with olives. Right. Because then you get like that salty briny plus like sweet pop of raisin in this like very savory, meaty situation. Yeah. And I think we underuse the idea of chopping up a raisin. Like in order to include a raisin in something, it doesn't have to be like a whole plump raisin. It could be just like you're getting into craisin territory or they're spread out, they're there, they're a little bit of sweetness, but you're not like getting a hot raisin. Right. You know, that's really interesting, just the idea of treating a raisin. So like raisins are actually very common in moles. Mm -hmm. And what normally happens is you fry the raisin in a little bit of lard. And so it becomes a little bit toasty, a little bit savory because of the lard. But then you're also boiling it and then completely blending it. So to your point, like you're distributing the sweetness. And what it really does is it just adds sweetness and acidity to the mole without like having a raisin in your mouth. Totally. Yeah, I also think we should investigate whether as human beings on Earth and maybe specifically Americans – are just anti-raisin because of the wrinkles. Like, we have such uh, (laughs) an obsession in this country with youth and, like, smooth foreheads and, like, the whole frickin' thing that we just can't embrace a wrinkle. And the wrinkle really comes with age and with concentration of everything. Like, the water has evaporated, that tasteless, sort of useless plumping and just taking up space, you've got a raisin. That is distilled down to the essence, right? There's a lot of wisdom in a raisin. And I think, like, let it go. It's okay to have lines around your mouth, and it's okay to love a raisin. But for those that might want to find that skincare treatment fountain of youth for their raisins, (laughs) what I have done in pastries is I have soaked them, which I actually really enjoy because you're adding an additional flavor so, for example, in a rum cake, in a stolen, mm-hmm. even in in oatmeal cookies, I have soaked the raisins, sometimes in hot apple cider, sometimes in rum, sometimes in a liqueur. And you just soak it in warm liquid for about 15 to 30 minutes, and it plumps up, and those wrinkles just melt away. <laughs> and now your raisin is plump, and all those wrinkles are gone, and you look 30 days younger. <laughs> I think I'm kind of the weirdo. Like, I don't like chocolate-covered strawberries or, like, fruit flavor in my chocolate, but I do like the kind of chocolate candy bar that has raisins and nuts oh, in it. Yeah. Isn't it the Cadbury bar that has the uh, the almonds and the raisins? That is really, really good. Yeah. I loved that. I loved those. No, those are super delicious. And I think if you know it's there, again, this is sort of like a big part of it. And I think a big part of people's objection is if you're eating carrot cake and you're surprised by a raisin, like you need to do some self-work. Like they're going <laughs> to, they're likely to be, <laughs> I mean, they're probably, they're very likely to be there. What she's saying, callers, is you're wrong. <laughs> I could see this similar to our marketing problem about salads that we had earlier. So maybe we just have to like rebrand raisin. I think it's gotten a bad rap and I, I understand it. But if you just were to call them dehydrated grapes, would more people eat them? I, you know, they might be more likely to. I also think that, I mean, at least for me, I remember getting those little boxes of the sun-made raisins like as a snack. And I'm just like, I don't want this as a snack. 
Put it in a cookie. Right. Oh, God. If someone gives that to you on Halloween, that is the biggest fuck you ever. I know. I mean, that really started an aversion to me until, like, I actually was like, oh, no, they're really good in things, but, like— But not in this, like, weird sticky box. No. And, like, your fingers, like, turn all gross and raisiny, <laughs> like, because you're, like, digging out, like, the raisins out of this tiny little box. I'm like, no, gross. Oh, well, I hope we haven't scared off another advertiser. Sunmade. <laughs> We do love a raisin. (laughs) We do. We do. We really do. Just not in those tiny little boxes. (laughs) And that's it for this week's episode of Borderline Salty. You can find recipes and recommendations from this week's episode in our show notes. And this will be our last new episode for now. Mom and Dad need to take a little break and dip our toes into the salty, warm water. But if you love the show and you want to be notified the minute we are back on, it would behoove you to subscribe. And if you haven't listened to all of the previous episodes, do that now. Check out the bank of previous episodes for more of our advice and banter and laughter. And we can't wait to talk to you again. And we will very soon. Borderline Salty is an original production by Pineapple Street Studios. We're your hosts. I'm Rick Martinez. I'm Carla Lolly Music. You can find links to our work in the show notes for this episode. Natalie Brennan is our lead producer. Janelle Anderson is our producer. Our managing producer is Agarena Shashagre. Our assistant producer is Mari Orozco. Our head of sound and engineering is Raj Makija. Mixing and engineering by Davy Sumner and Jason Richards. Our assistant engineers are Sharon Bardalis and Jade Brooks. Original music from our very own Raj Makija. Additional music from Vincent Vega, Spring Gang, and Glovebox, courtesy of Epidemic Sound. Legal services for Pineapple Street are provided by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Des Rochers. Our executive producers are Max Linsky and Jenna Weiss-Berman. We appreciate Pamela, Mr. Ham, Abby, and Brian for calling in this week. And we really appreciate every single person who has helped us make the first 20 episodes of this show. We love you so much. This would not be possible without you. Thanks to all of you for continuing to listen, sending us your questions, sending us pictures of your nails. We love you so much. We can't wait to see you again. It's not farewell. It's see you later. Ciao for now. Ciao for now. 